Theologian John Murray said that reverence for God is the heart, the very soul of true thought and the impulse for all worship. What he means is that reverence for God is at the heart of what it means to actually think as human beings. Therefore, reverence for God is what it truly means to be alive, to be human. But why reverence for God? What does Murray mean by this? The reason Murray says this is because God is God, and we are his creatures. This is why creation is important and why we're studying creation, because we are motivated to think rightly about God, and we cannot do so if we do not understand the world that he has made. And so I'm preaching this fall on the topic of creation, and my goal is to help you think rightly about God by understanding the works of God's hands, his creation. I'm also hopeful that these sermons will, for some of you, answer questions that you may have about creation. I used to teach biology, and I love to talk about all of these sorts of things. I'm also hoping that you're going to see why creation matters, that why knowing God's creation will help you love God more, to know yourself better, and to know what God has called you to do and who he's called you to be in this world. So my text this morning is the second verse of the Bible, and some of you might be thinking, a whole sermon on a single verse. But think about this, the first phrase of our Constitution, we the people, how many books do you think have been written on that? Books, volumes. And this is our Constitution, this book, this is our charter document, Genesis, the book of beginnings. Besides that, Genesis 1-2, the second verse of the Bible is much neglected. We, we will often hear about the first verse and the third verse of Genesis, but Genesis 1-2 is sometimes lost in between. So as we look at our origin document, these first phrases of the entire body of Scripture, I'm going to briefly review some points I made last week in Genesis 1-1, and that's important because Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 are interconnected. And then I'm going to look at Genesis 1-2, and we'll see three things that Genesis 1 teaches, and I'll conclude by how it applies to our lives. Let's begin then by reading God's holy word, his inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So far in God's word, let us pray. Father, your word has been read. I pray now that the words of my mouth, as I explain and proclaim your truth, and the thoughts and questions and reflections on each one of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. So first, a brief review from some things I mentioned last week in Genesis 1.1. I said last week that the beginning of God's creation the absolute very first act of creation is found in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you were here last week, I, you will remember that I said that this is not a summary verse of the entirety of what happens in Genesis 1, as some teachers 
will communicate. That summary verse is present, but it's not Genesis 1-1. If you look, it's Genesis 2-1, which reads, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. This verse kindly looks back to everything that transpired in Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 1-31. No, Genesis 1-1 is not a summary verse. It's an initiation verse. Creation is initiated with this verse. We read about the creation out of nothing, of all that there is. How do we know this? Well, the word created is in the perfect tense. That means it can't be pointing to something that hasn't happened yet. God had created. It happened. We also know this because heaven and earth is speaking of all of reality. It's a, it's a phrase. It's called a merism. It's like the two brackets of the parentheses. In between heaven and earth includes everything that exists. All our material world, and in fact, time itself is included in this bracketed phrase, heaven and earth. And likewise, the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know this is not a summary because in the beginning refers to the absolute beginning of all of reality. I said even time was created. The only thing that existed prior to the beginning was God. Because God has no beginning. God is the uncreated creator. So I come then with that brief summary to looking at Genesis 1, verse 2. I said sometimes this verse is ignored. It's actually quite important, but we sometimes miss it. We're going to look at three basic things that this verse teaches. First of all, it teaches about the earth of Genesis 1-1. Look at what the text says. The earth, verse 2, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I said these two verses are interconnected. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the two great spheres of reality, the two great realms of nature or creation. And so the earth that's mentioned in verse 1 is then resumed and focused upon in verse 2. Now the earth, that earth that I was just talking about, Moses wants you to understand. This relates to the important idea that verse 1 is not a summary. If verse 1 is a summary, then creation doesn't actually begin until verse 3. And there's no record then in the Holy Bible of how God created all things out of nothing. So verse, verse 2, the earth of Genesis 1-2 is the earth of Genesis 1-1. That's the first thing we learn. It talks about the earth. Secondly, the earth in Genesis 1-2 is empty and incomplete. It's empty and incomplete. Take a look at what the text says. The earth, this earth, the earth that God had created, was without form and void. Without form means formless. It means it's not structured yet. It doesn't have a shape. It's not fully mature. And as a result, it's void, the ESV says, is my, my version of the Bible. Void means empty. It, it doesn't contain anything. Now that's in strong contrast, as we saw just a minute ago, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Now the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. We see a picture of a, 
of a creational space that is now ordered and organized. And of course, day one and day two and day three and day four gives us this beautiful picture of our harmonious and organized, structured filling and creation of all that there is. But in one, two, that's not the case. In one, two, it's a disorganized and incomplete reality. To illustrate this, I want to point to an event that has affected many of us in recent weeks. If, you've, if you live in an area where the, the, the tornado went through, Mullica Hill and Winona and some other parts of our, of our region, and Mantua and so forth, or if you've driven through in the past few weeks, you'll have witnessed the terrifying power of nature. The path of the tornado brought destruction that thankfully, as far as I'm aware, didn't result in many deaths, but it did take out houses, animals, fences, cars, and what seemed to me as I witnessed some of the, the destruction, entire forests of trees. The picture is one of chaotic devastation, and, and as I was witnessing some of this, I noticed some houses had orange stickers on them indicating that they were not habitable. They were not able to be dwelt in in their present condition. Now, my point of this illustration is to paint a picture of human chaos that people can relate to. Now, in the case of a tornado, this kind of chaos brings ruin and misery, and it costs thousands, millions of dollars, perhaps, and lives are lost. But this is not the kind of chaos we have in Genesis 1-2. This is not that sort of disorder or disorganization. In fact, what we see in Genesis 1-2 is the opposite of that sort of disorder. In the image of Genesis 1-2, which sometimes people refer to as chaos, it's better to be translated or understood as, as shapeless or, or immature, as I've said, without structure. It's empty. It's formless and empty. Because it lacks structure, it's not fit for human habitation. This is not a picture of devastation like a tornado. It's a picture of something that is, is yet to be finished. What still needs to happen is the amazing creation week of Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 and following. God needs to create light and darkness. He needs to create the great spheres of heaven. He needs to create the land, and he needs to create the waters of the ocean. He needs to separate them from the depths. But what we see thirdly in Genesis 1-2, my third thing that we need to learn from this is that there is actually organization here. Though it is without full organization, full structure, there is organization to be seen. Take a look carefully. There's at least five aspects that we can see organization. So we see basically in front of our eyes is this something called the depths. It's like a cosmic bath of darkness. And in this depth which is described as a kind of watery depths, there is something called a surface or a face of the deep. So we have a watery depths, a dark watery depths with a surface over it. Now a surface implies a boundary and if there's total chaos and disorder, there are no boundaries. And while the tornado didn't destroy everything in its path, it definitely did. Where it showed up, there were no boundaries it moved through and just erased everything in its path. So there's, 
certainly the organization of this surface and its depths. But then notice our text tells us that above the surface of the depths, over this watery deep, there is some sort of space or atmosphere, a, a dimensionality. And in, in this scene, we see occupying this dimensionality, the, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it is, is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is described in this space above the depths as hovering or moving back and forth. And this mo motion, this movement, is elsewhere in the Bible describing the movement of the, of the wings of a mother bird. And so this is clearly not a chaotic scene. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but in my pastoral imagination, I see a picture of quietness. I see a picture of actually controlled quietness, where the Spirit of God, like a mother bird, is hovering over this dark surface of a watery depths. So we see the depths are there, we see the surfaces there, we see this dimensionality above the surface, and then there's movement in this dimension by the Spirit of God in some way that's resembling the movement of a mother bird. And then if you look at Genesis 1-9, we discover in verse 9 of, of chapter 1 that God lets the waters under the heavens are gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. This verse 9 is referring to these watery depths in some way they're connected. And so at the, at the base of the depths, in other words, is some sort of firm surface of earth. This is what God had created at first. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so even though it's formless and incomplete, it is not a disorganized chaos. Even though it is not yet mature, it is potential to be mature. So there's at least five dimensions or, or aspects of structure in our passage pointing to the opposite of what you would think of the chaos of a tornado. I think of, uh, and this is in honor of my son-in-law, the humming engine of a NASCAR race car on the start line. This is going somewhere. And the life-giving spirit of God is that, is that engine, if you will, of life and and as the Spirit is hovering and humming over the dark, watery surface of the depths, you can see the power of life just beginning, almost beginning to coalesce in the Spirit's movement because where the Spirit of God is, there is life. This is in honor of my children, my daughters who love to cook. The picture here is of a kitchen ready for the chef to begin his or her masterpiece. All the ingredients are spread out on the counter before him. And you might walk into this kitchen and it might seem like it's, it's a chaotic disarray, but the chef will say, there's method to my madness. This might look like disorder, but no, there is a plan. And you will not believe the masterpiece that will result at the end of this. This reminds me a little bit of an arrow pulled back on the string, ready to be released. There would be no question in your mind that that's disorganized chaos. It isn't what it's going to be. That arrow is going somewhere. The question is where, not if, but when and where. So the scene then, in summary, is a patient, 
primordial emptiness, creation humbly awaiting the arrival of the Word of God. That's the picture that we have in Genesis 1-2, and it is awesome. Before I end with some closing applications, I want to address a couple of questions that people have sometimes asked me about this verse. Pastor, if, if God created everything, or matter, reality, material existence, time, heavens, earth, and everything in between, in this unformed primordial emptiness, this formless, dark, watery depths, if he did that in Genesis 1-1, how long did it take before we get to Genesis 1-3? My answer is usually, the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't say. Now, I happen to think they are very closely tied within an hour or two. But that's an inference that is not in the text. And I'm going to talk about the days of creation next Sunday, but for now, I think it's important to recognize that the Bible doesn't always answer the questions that we have. And so to make and force and push Genesis to answer questions that it simply hasn't answered is to impose our own agenda on the text of Scripture, which is just one step away from disregarding the Scriptures altogether and living your life by your own plan and by your own Scriptures, whatever they may be. I happen to believe that the days of Genesis Chapter 1 are ordinary 24-hour days, so I suspect that this took place relatively quickly, but it just doesn't say. It just doesn't say. Another question that I am asked sometimes is, does verse 2, with all the darkness and the depths and the mystery, the doom and the gloom, does this describe the fallen angels or what the fall of the angels did to God's good creation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As I conclude, I want to share a story with you from the Scriptures. It's a story about a man named Job, who was a godly man. He was a a role model, if I may put it this way, a a role model citizen, a role model Christian in, in so many ways. Job prayed for his children every day. Job shared his, out of the abundance of his wealth, he was a wealthy man. He was in the the top 500 wealthiest men of the ancient world. He shared his wealth with the poor. He was honest. He was righteous. He was trustworthy. He did what was right before God and with his wife. He was faithful as a model human being. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, Job had to endure sufferings unimaginable by most anyone's story. can hardly compare to what Job went through. I encourage you to read the book of Job. Even the first few chapters is mind-blowing. And so Job, in trying to wrestle with, as you would, his, the, the reality of his suffering, Job asked questions of God. And, and, and while his questions were often reverent and honest and true, We must say that at times they cross the line 
into the disrespectful and to the disregard of the deity. And I'm not blaming Job for doing this. I, I wouldn't have turned out as well as he did. But, but in the end, when God finally appears in the book of Job, Job is called to account. And you know how God does it. You know what God chooses to use to communicate to his servant Job. How does God lovingly, but in a fatherly way, conf lovingly confront his servant Job? He talks about creation. This is what he says. Job 38, 4 through 7. Job, this is God speaking. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. The Bible is being sarcastic here. Surely you know. You don't know. Job, who stretched out the line upon the earth? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? What I focused in on when I saw this passage is this phrase, the morning stars. How is it that the morning stars are singing for joy? If you like poetry like me, you're like, no problem. Stars can sing. But if you're more of an engineering type, you know, black and white, you're like, okay, the, the sons of God are singing for joy, so morning stars is probably parallelism. It's probably just the angels. I think it's both angels and stars are singing at the creation of God. They're singing. What a symphony to have heard that song. You know, creation is described in the Bible as, as joining an all-creation choir. The trees of the field are clapping their hands. The waters are declaring the praises of God. The skies, we sang about the skies in Psalm 19 just a few minutes ago. And I mean, if you say you can't sing, the rocks themselves are crying out, Jesus tells us. You can at least sing like a rock. Come on, guys. So what about Genesis 1-2? Do you think there was singing in Genesis 1-2? In this formless and empty, bathy depths of darkness? Before the foundations of the earth had been separated from the waters, with the Spirit of God hovering over the deeps, was there a song? I don't think so. In my mind, again, pastoral imagination, I hear the conductor's wand tapping on the podium as the whole symphony is silent. Maybe a squeak, maybe the tap of a foot, a shuffle of a chair, but silent, waiting for the voice of the Lord to speak forth light, and the symphony begins. Well, what can we learn from this morning's passage? A couple of important lessons as you try to apply these, this important verse to your life. You know, I've said it before, the Bible is given to us for personal change. None of us are the people that we want to be. And even if you're not yet a Christian, you know you're not the person that you need to be. 
How does God want you to change this morning? I think he, he wants you to know, first of all, that the first verse of the Bible and verse 2 teaches you there is no one like God. No one. God alone is infinite. Unlike creation, he has no beginning or end. God alone is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. No creature can hover over the bathy depths of primordial darkness and speak a word and bring forth light. No one can do that but God. One commentator said, the distance between being and non-being is infinite and only God can travel that road. All of you, when you create something, you have to start with something. And even the idea that comes into your mind is given to you by the Lord. Only God can create nothing because the Bible says he gives life and breath to all things. And you need to know this. I said at the beginning of my sermon, I quoted John Murray saying, reverence for God is the soul of thinking. If that's true, then this understanding of creation will help you think. Knowing that when you're looking at creation, it was brought into being out of nothing by an omnipotent and infinite God. That's going to help your mind. It's going to focus your thoughts and your efforts. Only when you know that this amazing world was made by God, and not just any God, little g, but the one true, living, unique, awesome, all-powerful, and infinite God, then you will revere him. Then you will know your place on the planet. It's not to be like him or her or to do this or do that. It's to look to God, your creator, and let him show you who you are and what you were called to do. Only when you know this can you do, as I'm encouraging you to do this morning, to make the first verse of the Bible a motto for your life. In the beginning, God. In the beginning of my day, I honor God because there is no one like him. In the beginning of my studies as a student, of my education, I will honor God because it is his world I am studying and I am seeking, as all the great scientists have ever done, the mind of the maker. Corey and Dina just got married. In the beginning of my marriage, they are seeking to put God first because there is no one like him who can keep two sinners together in a lifelong bond of covenant unity. At the outset of my life as a mom or a dad, when my first baby comes into the world or my last baby leaves the home, I'm going to put God first because he alone knows what it means to be a parent. And in my suffering, in the beginning of my season of suffering, illness, loss, sadness, grief, or trouble, even then, in that beginning, we're going to put God first because there is no one like him. Second, I want you to learn from this, and I think you need to adjust your thinking, that God doesn't do everything like that. God could have spoken and brought the entire chorus of creation into being in an instant, in less than an instant. This idea of instantaneous creation is no more or less supernaturally miraculous than what we see in the scriptures. But for some reason, God took his time. First, he created the heavens and the earth. In this watery depths that we've been discovering, this primordial 
potentiality of, of life and music. And then after some period of time, maybe short, maybe long, God spoke and created light and proceeded over the course of six orderly days. He could have done it all at once, but he took his time. And this is an important lesson from Genesis 1-2 that you need to learn. As you look on the watery depths, you wonder, why isn't there more there? Why isn't there more happening? But God wanted you to know that his plan takes time to complete, and so in our lives. If you have some, some important work to be done on your home, you know it takes time. If you're working on a project in your place of employment, you know a, a complex project with multiple dimensions takes time. I mean, 295, will that ever be done? These things take time. Sometimes you see a, a plot of land, you know, coming soon, a Wawa or whatever. Years go by. Behind the scene permits and laws and whatever else that they need to do, it takes time. Scripture says that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he has prepared in advance, that you should walk in them, that you should, that you would walk in them, but you're not there yet. This good work that you're at today, this difficult work, you're looking at all the other works that you want to do, but he has this work for you today, and then this work comes in day two, and then this work comes in day three. Particularly for young people who are, who are, by definition, immature, not fully grown. It's hard to wait on the Lord. Sometimes it sinks that you think that there's something's wrong with my life. But it might not be anything wrong. It might not be any sin. It might just be that God is taking his time. Trust him. Another lesson we need to learn, a third lesson, and I have just one more after this. What God does in making the world is different than what he does in sustaining the world. Theologians and Christians call this creation and providence. Creation is what he does in bringing the world into being. Providence is what he does in sustaining the world. God is equally present in both. He doesn't create the world and then go off on a vacation and let it run like a clock that he's wound up. He's active in creation, and he's active in providence, but these are different activities. But they're not so different that they're unrelated. That's why the Bible again and again uses God's almighty power in creation to describe his almighty power in providence and in redemption. Are you in trouble? Psalm 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Are you suffering? Are you tired? Remember what Isaiah said in chapter 40 and verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Are you in darkness? Do you need God's salvation, the light of his love in your life? Hear the promise of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your redeemer. 
has graciously and powerfully revealed himself in the hearts of his people. He's shown the light of heaven into the darkest depths of the human heart. That's the good news of the gospel. Finally, I want to end with a prayer that focuses on the spirit, this hovering mother bird spirit who is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This image of this mother bird, as I've said throughout my message this morning, points to the, to the life-giving power of this third person of the Trinity as he hovers over the unformed, sinless, but incomplete and immature world you see life almost beginning to emerge by his very presence. Let's pray. Dear God, the Holy Spirit, when David sinned and repented, he prayed, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We join him in prayer this morning. Do not take your Holy Spirit from us. Shelter us with thy spirit. Don't expose us to the wrath of God. Cover us with life. Draw forth life and order as you overshadow our immaturity and chaos with your wings. O Holy Spirit, as you hover over us, apply the blood of the Son of God. In your over-hovering, cover over us with your power. With your wings of grace, the wings of the dove, shelter us from the destroying angel of God's wrath. Protect us, O Spirit, from what our sins deserve. Fill us with yourself. Fill us with all joy and peace in believing. Bring order and maturity and perfection to our discouraged and disordered lives, families, churches, nation, and world. Grant us this, our great Creator and Redeemer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.